Reading from the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, starting with verse 40. Speaking of Jesus, and the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, he, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. Now this was, uh, just parenthetically, this would be uh, Jesus' uh, bar mitzvah. This was when he became a man. When you were twelve years old in the Jewish faith, as many of you know, um, you become a man. And as they were returning, after spending a full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? They did not understand the statement which he had made. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. Last night at the uh, progressive dinner, by the way, if you've never been to one of those things, you you need to to go to one of those things. Those Those are fun. We just eat until we blow up twice our size and then roll home. And uh, I was talking with a, a gal who is a behaviorist uh, for the Orange County school system and is designing a new program for the kids down there. And we were talking about risk. I was talking about how if I don't risk and fail at least 20% of what I'm doing, I'm probably not trying enough. That risk is a part of living flat out for God. And, uh, and she was mentioning all of the caution notes that we get from the time we are little. You know, our mothers send us off to school and say to us, be careful. Um, And when we um, uh, succeed at something, uh, most often we get this phrase, why don't you quit while you're ahead? Why don't you quit while you're ahead? Um, And of course, there are others that say, you know, why is quippy sayings like uh, better to keep your mouth shut and and let people think you're a fool than open it and remove all doubt and so on and so forth. This cautious, cautious kind of living for Christians. And Christians tend to be fairly conservative people anyhow. But the one that says, why don't you quit while you're ahead, is so inbred into Christianity and it is exactly what Satan would have us do because you know what Satan defeats so many more Christians by victory than he does by defeat when we are in defeat when we are hurting we know enough to turn to God but when we have victory in our lives something 
trips us up. We, we let down our defenses. We begin to become literally, as the, as, the, as the demon said, full of ourselves. And that is when the demons have a heyday. <clears throat> By the way, before I go on, let me just say to you that there is a tremendous amount of spiritual warfare that's taking place in this church recently. It is because we are approaching what God has given us in the future. But I cannot believe the things that I've heard in just the last week. Now, I don't, I'm not one who sees a demon behind every bush and, and, and casts every cause upon Satan because that, frankly, gives Satan more power than he really has. But I do know attack when I hear it. And there has been so much going on in this body, in your lives. And so I just want to tell you that. Don't be surprised. Because as long as you are going for what God wants, it's not going to be easy. Satan's going to come and get you any way he can. And if he can't get you, listen to this. I just read this this week. This is tremendous. If he can't have victory over you, he will have victory over someone you love, which then becomes a victory over you. In other words, if he can't stop you by you, he'll stop you by somebody else or he'll try. So therefore, just a note of caution. And you'll be hearing more about that as we go along. So anyhow, in scripture, again and again and again, people's great fall came after their great victories. In the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. Victorious life. Talked with God every day. And the fall came out of that setting. Not out of a setting of hardship. But out of a setting of being able to eat every, of every tree of the garden, except one, just, just one tree, could they not? And the fall still came. You remember Elijah, after he had, um, he had conquered 450 prophets of Baal. 450 prophets of Baal. The greatest victory in all of his life. Remember how he did that? You know, they, they built an altar. And he, he built an altar to the, to the true God and he poured water all over it, you know? And he said, you know, light the altar. Let your God light your altar. And, and nothing happened. And after pouring all of that water on his altar, fire came down from heaven. And the Bible says it licked up the water and set that altar ablaze. Now 450 prophets of Baal turned tail and ran. And the sentence after that episode says this. Now Ahab, who was the evil queen, a king, told Jezebel, who was the evil queen, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then the second verse down, verse 3 says, And he, meaning Elijah, was afraid and arose and ran for his life. He had just faced 450 prophets of Baal and ran from a woman. After the greatest victory of his life, the greatest embarrassing defeat. Look at David in 2 Samuel. It talks about David becoming so successful that the first sentence in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel tells it all. Then it happened... 
This is the, they're leading into the passage about Bathsheba, about he falls into sin with Bathsheba. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab, who was his general, and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem. And now when the evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. You see... David had become so victorious in his life and he had delegated responsibility so well that he wasn't going to battle anymore. He had lost the edge. He had become so successful that he had become vulnerable. What was the, the most tempting time in the life of Christ? The longest temptation that we read about that Christ ever had came right after his baptism when the skies opened up and the voice of God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. In the fourth chapter of Matthew it says, and then he was led by the spirit out into the desert to be tested. Again and again and again and again. The greatest moments of vulnerability are after victory. And so therefore, victory can be a very dangerous thing because we become full of ourselves. We become reliant on ourselves and we let up the battle. Now it's normal to want to take a brief rest after you've had a hard fight and after you've won. That's very normal. But there's something in us, all of us, that wants to savor that and wants to keep it, and wants to feed off of it. But the Bible's very clear. Victory is like manna. You can't keep it. It rots. You've got to go get it every day you live. There has to be something during the day that you feed directly from God, or you will starve. Victory is like manna. It is woven into the character of this nation. It is woven into the American culture that we look forward not to continuous victory, but to relaxation. That is the whole dream of retirement. Someday, I'll, I'll not have to work anymore. Someday, I'll be able to play golf every day. Someday, I'll be able to, to um, um, take a trip. And just travel as much as we want. Someday. There's nothing in scripture. Nothing. That talks about retirement. Not in a spiritual sense. Oh it doesn't matter if we quit our world of jobs. That's not really retirement. Because we can still have victory. We can still continue to grow. We can still. Continue mature for the Lord. Even at that age. And so I'm not saying don't ever retire from your job, but I'm saying the mentality that says I do all this so that I can relax and do nothing is not in scripture and promotes great vulnerability. What do you think that the soldiers who died to give us freedom think? When they look down from heaven, those ones who are in heaven, and they see that the largest problems we have in this nation today 
are not from foreign powers that would take us over militarily. But they are from an immaturity in the use of the freedom that they won for us. They are from a disintegration of our character from having too much leisure, from having it too easy and not knowing what to do with the ease that we have. Think about it for a second. What is the scourge of this nation? Well, drugs are the scourge of this nation. That's a scourge of leisure. That's a scourge of escape. That's not from working ourselves to death. That's not even from being in a battle. This nation is so wealthy that people can steal from one another in order to just simply rot their brains. And they have role models, not just in the ghettos, but they have role models in the boardrooms from cocaine. They have role models from old hippies that never learned how not to smoke marijuana. They have role models from alcohol. Alcoholism is the third leading cause of death in this nation. What's the scourge? Well, there's a scourge of AIDS. And AIDS is basically a scourge of leisure. A scourge of escape. Not of battle, but of a place that we have arrived, that we are so free with our morals now. And we are so free with society's standards that we literally die of our own sexuality. What's, the, what's everybody talking about in, in terms of politics? What is, what is on everybody's, well, national debt. The national debt. We're scared to death that somehow the economy's going to fold up. And you know what we're doing about it? Almost nothing. Except trying to get reelected. You know, it kills me when people say our politicians aren't accountable. Our politicians are so accountable that all they care about is getting reelected. They will tell us anything they think we need to hear for their vote. To vote for them, I mean, for our vote. And we buy it. But when you think that what could finally bring this nation down is the inability to withhold our spending, to restrain our spending for things that we don't even need with money we don't have, that's a frightening possibility. It is a frightening um, um, commentary on how immature we are with the freedom that we have. It doesn't make any sense. How are we using our freedom? We are chasing little bitty things that will eventually end up in our demise. You know, some years ago, I don't know whether you read this in the paper or not, but some years ago, a school of whales was chasing a school of sardines. And the sardines cut into this bay and the whales followed them in and literally, because they could not find their way out, 300 whales died. And the paper, a newspaper article said, and he was talking more about people than he was about whales. He said, they met their violent demise because they were chasing small ends. They prostituted their vast powers 
four insignificant goals. If this nation ever has a tombstone, that's what it will say. If this nation ever falls apart, that will be our epitaph. We never chased anything big enough. Our picture of the world was so tiny. We were so preoccupied with what was so insignificant that we failed to go on to the greatness that matched our power. It is very important, Christian. It is very important to know that you were made for a purpose that is far beyond anything you can buy, anything, any title you can get, any job you can have. It is very important, Christian, to know that no matter what victories you have in your life, those victories aren't ends in themselves. They are always the means to an end. They are always to make you great people so that you can add to the entire world and not concentrate on the little bitty victory you've just gotten. I don't care if you've gone all day without make, eating sweets. You know, that's what we talk about. Gosh, I've gone a whole day without eating sweets. I've lost five pounds. Like that was important. Does it matter if you weigh 300 pounds? I mean, really, is God going to say, sorry? Now, there is something to gluttony, obviously. And none of us like to be slaves to food. But we are fighting things that are not really as important as what we could be contributing to the world. This world needs us. And do you know what we are bequeathing the world right now? We are bequeathing the world the language of litigation. Becky teaches in, in, uh, at Milwee, and he sa he, she said, junior high kids know their rights. They know the law. They know law better than they know any subject in school because they want to sue you for everything you've got. Now, sometimes they misunderstand their rights. Becky was saying the other day that a kid just in, in class just got up went over, got out a lighter, and started to light the American flag because it was his understanding that he had the freedom to do that. And Becky said, <laughs> see, um, it's got to be your flag, it's got to be on your grounds, and so on and so forth. Oh, well, I'm sorry, I didn't get that. See, sometimes they misunderstand their rights, but, but they're still enamored with the rights that they have and the power they could get through the legal process and through the political process. They understand that. Kids who don't even know how to add two and two understand that. And the other thing that we are bequeathing them is the ability to share our pain. Now, let me just say this. Before, before you hear what I'm not saying, I think that all of the recovery groups that exist serve wonderful purposes. And I believe that recovery groups are very, very helpful. But do you realize as a culture we're more interested in therapy than we are in theology? Do you realize that what we are teaching our kids is how to share pain and how to share defeat so that they can connect with one another, but we never show them how to have hope. 
We never show them what they can be. We never teach them how to live with ideals, in their ideals. We teach them simply how not to do bad things over and over again. Well, in scripture it says, look, by now you should be doing much more than that. Look, in, in, in Hebrews 5, um, let me read that to you if I can get it here. I didn't mark it and I don't have tabs on this one. Hebrews. Hebrews. There it is. Okay, Hebrews 5, the end of the chapter, and then verse 6. This is everybody's problem. This is, this is our problem. For by this time you ought to be teachers, it says. Verse 12. You have need again for someone to teach you again the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have not come to need milk, or you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works of faith towards God. You know what he's talking about there? Quit gloating over the little things you do well. There's another message of culture that says when you do something well, stick to it. Just do that. Don't do anything else. In other words, don't try something that you could fail at. Baloney. That's not God talking. That's culture talking. We got, we, of course we cannot keep doing the same things wrong that we did wrong. I, I, that, I, I heard of a... Uh, a guy in Wichita, this was in the Associated Press, a guy in Wichita got ticketed for speeding and went to the courthouse to, um, you know, go into the court. And it, there was a huge snowfall that night. And so, this is a true story. Court, uh, the courthouse wasn't open. So the only guy that was there was this guy who came to come to his trial and he was on time and so on and so forth. And so, he wrote the judge a follow-up letter said, dear judge, he said, <laughs> I, was at, I was not notified that court would not be meeting and, and I was the only one there. And since I was the one that was there and that was the appointed time, I went ahead and had my own trial. Now, I had to play all the players. I had to be the judge and I had to be the accuser and I had to be the accused, but I did all of that. And as the accuser, I accused myself of going 46 miles an hour in, 40, in a 35 mile an hour zone. That's what they said that I did. And so I accused myself of that. And as the accused, I, I said that, well, I probably was going pretty fast, but I, I had a, a, a monitor set on my uh, speedometer, and so I know I wasn't going 46, and as the accused, that was my case. And as the judge, um, I, I realized that that case was pretty flimsy and pretty silly, and so I tossed the case out of court, but I better not do it again. <laughs> well, you know, that's kind of, but it worked. I mean, he, he got off, but anyhow... <laughs> What we've, what we've got to realize is that, yeah, we've got to tell ourselves as, our, as, as the judge, yeah, we, you better not do that anymore. But that's not the end of life. There is something so much bigger that we are going to be exploring over the next 10 years. 
There is something so much more profound and so much more important than just doing the little victories that we have now and we think are so important. There's a vast, vast spiritual world out there and there's a culture in need of us. And we're going to need God because of it. Carl Bates used to, used to pray, God, send me your power. I want your power in my life. And years later, it still had not come in any appreciable amount. And he got angry with God. And he said, God, why have you not sent your power in my life? And he heard these words, Carl, with your goals, you don't need my power in your life. Your power is quite sufficient. Is it because our goals are not big enough that we are not experiencing God? Is it because our picture is so small that we have prevented God from coming into our lives in all of his power? You bet it is. It absolutely is. I used to have uh, a friend, Denny Adams, who... At a young age, I mean at a young age, was able to kick a football a mile. I mean, the kid was six years old and he could kick a football over Francie Simon's garage, which was fantastic for a six-year-old. Everybody marveled at this kid. And every day he'd go out and he'd kick the football. And every day that thing would sail dozens of times over Francie Simon's garage. Do you know what happened when Denny Adams was old enough to join a football team? And all through his high school career, you know what he did? He went in his backyard every day and kicked a football over the garage. Never stepped foot on a football field. Always was in his backyard. Christian, what do you think happens when we practice our Christianity at home? And don't practice it in the world. What do you think? How silly do you think we appear to God when he has given us all of the opportunity to take out into the world what is a fantastic gift and we're at home booting something over our own garage. It's pitiful and it's such a waste. Victory does not ensure joy. It only gives the opportunity for maturity and going on from there. That's all victory does. It gives you the opportunity to take the next step instead of keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And if we don't take that, then we will be sorry on Judgment Day. On Judgment Day, we will be horribly embarrassed. Because there is a judgment of works. And God has in his mind what he has made us for. Ephesians 2. He has given us good works that we should walk in them. He has predestined us toward good works that we should walk in them. If we don't fulfill those, we're in trouble. I read a telegram one, day, one time that a kid sent his mother from college. Dear mom, failed everything. Prepare dad. And his mom wired back, Dear son, dad prepared, you prepare. 
Dear God, I meant well. I just failed. Prepare yourself. Dear Christian, prepare yourself. Would you pray with me? God, forgive us for the pride we take in the little things instead of seeing them as simply a stepping stone toward maturity. Forgive us for the desire to do something that is good enough that we can rest in it instead of continue forgetting that which lies behind and pressing on toward the mark which is the high calling of Jesus Christ. Please forgive us and help us to know that we have not yet attained or laid hold of that which we were called for. This morning, help us to rededicate ourselves to the big picture, to the spiritual goals, to that which we have not yet begun to taste or to see, but that waits for us calling to us, inside of us, to that which will never let us be satisfied with things of this world, but will only give us the peace which, which we seek when we know that we can hear your voice on that day say, well done, good and faithful servant, come into the joy of your father. Lord, help us step by step from now on out for as far as we can see, as far as you've given us for the next 10 years, in all of the spiritual victories we have and in all of the spiritual defeats, to see them as nothing but a step closer to you, where you can use us more mightily than you did before. And we can add something to your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.